initiative that we have everyone here today. Uh, we have DJ Johnson from B6. They're a very active uh, investment sales brokerage located in New York. Um, and they are growing very rapidly and emerging as one of the uh, one of the important names in the investment sales business. We have uh, Finley Askin, who's an investment sales broker out of Chicago with CRER. Um, Finley's an up and coming star and uh, he's involved in a lot of the large multifamily transactions in Chicago. So he's definitely the, the guy that you want to know if you're looking to buy or sell multifamily buildings uh, in Chicago. Then we have Amir Kornblum uh, from Resheffi. He is a, a highly experienced real estate attorney who's been involved in over $1.5 billion worth of real estate transactions and some, somehow finds the time to be an NYU professor as well. It's actually 15, not point one point five. You added a decimal point. Oh, okay. <laughs> very nice. Yeah, right. Don't well, make that mistake again. <laughs> Um, so now that we've got the intros done, I'd like to just jump into it. So today we're going to be discussing the various trends that are occurring in the multifamily industry. Um, it, multifamily has been seen as a safe haven in the like COVID, post-COVID worlds, just because other asset classes have had a lot of instability. Um, so with that being said, I will ask the first question to DJ. Um, so, DJ, what are you seeing in terms of trends uh, in the multifamily industry? Just to throw out an easy question for you. An easy but broad question. Exactly. Um, you know, I always laugh because you asked an investment sales broker and um, everything is great. You know, everything, you know, we're selling 100 buildings. Uh, the market's good. It's the seller's market. Um, I'll try to be a little more transparent during this conversation so that you guys feel like you can get to the truth a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, the one thing that I always turn towards, cause I think it's a pretty good indicator on just the general health of the real estate market in New York city, uh, is transaction volume, right? You know, dollar volume could be through the roof, but if you have a $2 billion Google trade kind of throw things, throws things off a little bit. So, you know, looking at transaction volume is kind of a good indicator on just the general turnover in New York city, as it relates to a lot of the, the multi, you know, middle market multifamily type product that I sell. Um, so, you know, coming out of kind of the, the, the COVID pandemic, I think the lowest transaction volume was about 150 a quarter, right? So that is, that is very low, obviously second quarter of 2020, uh, very little transactions took place. You know, we've seen that kind of, um, increase quarter over quarter, you know, step-by-step, step, maybe 50, hundred trades every quarter to a point now where we're seeing about 500 to 550 trades, uh, a quarter. So end of this year, we're tracking about 1800. Uh, transactions, uh, which is about 10% below the 10-year average, right? So what that tells us is that we're at a point, we're at a crossroad where sellers and buyers are starting to uh, meet in the middle, right? And there's various reasons for why that's happening, and I can probably speak to that a little bit later on. But um, I think the overall kind of consensus and theme is that finally, you know, buyers have discovered their pricing, they, they're confident, they're smarter, they're analytical, and life decisions, you know, buyers' motivations have met them in the middle to a point where we're starting to see transaction volume again. So, you know, it's not all great, 
Um, you know, unemployment is still a problem. Vacancy is still a little bit of a problem, but is improving. Um, but again, quarter over quarter, we're starting to see some, some real progress. So that's my quasi positive spin on kind of what we're seeing transactionally. Sure. Um, I guess the question is whether New York is a microcosm of the rest of the country or an outlier. Uh, yeah, so, you know, speaking from a Chicago perspective, you know, what I'm seeing in my specific market is, uh, as DJ was, you know, discussed, there's definitely issues we're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, vacancy, you know, operators aren't able to evict their tenants right now, and they haven't been able to, you know, for, for some time, but we're still seeing, you know, an extremely hot market, prices have definitely risen this year, uh, a lot of the, the biggest trend that we're seeing, especially on the south side of Chicago right now, are just uh, new buyers entering the market, uh, most from New York, uh, you know, coming in, uh, you know, why, why is that? You know, I think there are a few reasons. Uh, I think these buyers see a lot of similarities between uh, New York and Chicago market. Uh, also, I think they look at uh, Chicago as very affordable. Uh, you know, and kind of like a New York on sale, you know, they can buy for, let's say, you know, 50K a door, quickly scale up 200 units, set up their own management, and, you know, e economy of scales uh, argument. Also, I think they're chasing yield. Uh, you know, there's not many markets, especially major markets across the country, you know, where you can get a 10% return, uh, you know, a, 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 a true, true 10 cap on actual numbers. Uh, so, you know, that that's how it, that's, Currently, what I'm seeing in my specific market, you know, I think overall in broad terms uh, across the country, multifamily as a sector, like kind of DJ, you know, mentioned it, you know, it's hot everywhere. And, you know, why is that? I think it boils down to three things, fear of inflation, low interest rates, and, and just the overall attractiveness of multifamily. Yeah, so let me, um, let me tell you what my experience has been. Uh, from the real estate law point of view. I'm a New York lawyer, but I've always been, I've worked at big firms. I've always been a national lawyer. I've done deals in I think 47 or 48 of the states. Um, but look, as a New York lawyer with New York clients, my clients were buying mostly in the New York area. When they were doing an out of, you know, out of their norm deal, they would buy something in North of New Jersey, which is still in the greater New York area. They really weren't going out as much into other states. Now, I have New York families or real estate players who have been in the business either this generation, a couple of generations, and they are not looking at anything in New York. They are only, we're talking about multifamily. And multifamily, as, um, as Finley said, is extremely hot. I think the only probably the hotter sector is industrial warehouse. That's, in, as far as I've seen, that's the hottest sector right now nationally for obvious reasons, you know, everything being led by Amazon. But in terms of multifamily, I think the New York people are just, they've had it. They've, uh, and this is pre-COVID. You know, COVID, COVID basically put fuel on the fire, but this is from June, 2020, or 2019, June 2019, where they the progressives took over, 
the, the Senate and completely the assembly. And in one year, in one, in a, actually a few short months, completely rewrote or turned back all the rent regulation to be completely tenant centric. So, you know, I don't know how many of you know exactly what happened, but basically the ability in a rent regulated building to raise rents is extremely, extremely constricted. And by the way, all the eviction problems, Finley was talking about eviction problems in Chicago. Yeah, you have all the eviction moratoriums, but prior to that, it was extremely, extremely hard to evict anyone in New York City anyway. You know, landlord, when you go to landlord tenant um, court in New York, you basically, as a landlord, no matter how strong your case, you're gonna lose, it's by how many points, right? It's whether you lose by a field goal or by three touchdowns. That's basically the best you're gonna get. So anyway, all these clients of mine are now on my desk. Um, I'm doing 90% of my deals are in other states. And the common feature is they're red states. So I'm doing tons of deal in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, more in Northern Florida. Some cities like Jacksonville, Tampa, Orlando, not the West Coast of Florida is super hot. You know, the Naples, the Fort Myers area, Oklahoma, Texas is, Texas and Florida are just searing hot because so many people are moving down there. And look, my clients, um, yeah, it's a lot harder to manage a property when you got to get on a plane rather than get in a car and drive. You know, especially some of these New York guys never had to drive more than what, 45 minutes to an hour to their, um, to, to their properties. But, you know, they're, they're doing it. You know, they hire good third people on property um, managers and they have good back offices to do everything from New York. But they don't have to worry. The rents are controlled by the market. They're not worried in these states that in one legislature session, everything's going to be flipped around. And look, they're, they're tired of being told they can only raise rents by 0.5% or 0% when no matter how good an operator you are, there are a whole slew of expenses that you have no control over. You have no, I don't, you know, you have no control over taxes. Water in New York is insane. The water bills, um, insurance. So anyway, that's what I'm seeing. Everyone is running. All this New York money is running. If, they, if they're looking for multifamily, it's out of state. And they believe in multifamily because, you know, they're not buying, my clients aren't buying high-end millionaire condos. They're buying um, garden, you know, anywhere from 200 to 1,000 garden house type complexes, garden um, apartments, um, townhouse type apartments. And, you know, another, another key factor is uh, if they're not owned by institutions, if they're owned by like older um, families, a lot of these aren't managed as well, honestly, outside the big cities. They're just, so you still can make money by the upside, just bringing in professional management and not letting things go to basically, you know, crap. So that's what I'm seeing. And in terms of New York, at least the rent regulated sector, unless the prices really drop, which they haven't, you know, everyone thought there'd be a lot more foreclosures and bank sales. They just haven't been. Unless that happens, I, I don't see the real estate money running into at least rent regulated housing. You know, the higher end condos, 
people are always going to want New York, right? New York's always going to be New York. But um, in terms of investment dollars, um, and I'll, I, I just don't see it. At least for the at least for the near future, unless there's a political change. If Eric Adams win, it'll help. But if the state Senate and Assembly keep going to the left, and their wish lists keep getting bigger and bigger, the money's going to keep chasing the states where you know people can actually practice capitalism. I mean, so, I, I really hope that. And I don't know that Eric Adams is going to be the, the savior of the real estate industry in New York. Um, but he definitely seems to be aligning himself, himself with people in the real estate industry, very noteworthy people in the real estate industry. And he seems to actually listen and care a lot more about business interests than the current administration. Um, so it's quite possible that he would help usher in more of a Bloomberg type era in New York, which would allow for more rezonings and allow for more policies that would uh, benefit the real estate industry instead of hurt it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, he's, he's at least a lot more practical but you know the, the thing that you don't hear about enough in the press is how many jobs have been lost because if you know you used to be able to for every certain amount it used to be forty dollars and they did it sixty dollars that you put into a unit a rent regulated unit after it got vacated you could raise the rent by a dollar they basically got rid of that so landlords are not going to put renovations in. No one talks about how many jobs have been lost by working class people, sheetrock layers, electricians, plumbers, because they don't have those jobs anymore. I have clients who've had to lay off a whole bunch of, you know, the maintenance staff that used to do this on, that would do this more alteration work rather than the just repair. One, one of my friends who's in real estate told me a bunch of his guys also, they went down south because that's where the jobs were, his workers. I mean, and I think that's a trend. New York. Yeah, I, th I think um, in defense of New York, and I don't think you're wrong, but I think you're speaking to larger institutions that are chasing value ideals. Mm. Um, you know, I speak to our inventory. We've got 60 multifamily listings on the market right now. So, you know, we're tracking when offers are coming in and where they're coming from and the types of buyers that they're coming from. And you're absolutely right that the, the, the types of buyers have shifted dramatically from value add guys to money managers, right? They're looking at, consistent New York assets that are very financeable, that will have good collections, very little growth, but good collections with really cheap debt. So, you know, I, I think that is really what's attracting people to these type of assets is just consistent cash flow, leveraging debt. And there's a lot of factors that could change that, right? So, um, you know, there's, there's other asset types within the multifamily sector that I think have a lot more draw. Right. You can look at newly developed properties with 35 year abatements. Right. You talk about, you know, rising uh, operating costs and risk of increased taxes. Obviously, you can't control water and those type of utilities, but those are fractional compared to the overall operating expense. It's controlling your taxes. And I think that's what everybody's concerned about. Um, so if you can buy into something that has a 35 year abatement and essentially fix your operating costs for the next 30 years, and really believe that New York free market rents are going to pop, and there's a lot of reasons why they should, 
then you know you could buy it a five cap and have it become a five and a half cap or six cap, and all of a sudden you you know you're you're competing on a cash flow basis with other markets. But you know you really um, have to look at each building individually, um, you know, you, you know, and and kind of make that decision on a on a one off basis. Are you seeing a lot more of the mom and pop owners who just can't handle the expenses anymore? They obviously have a lot less room for error. So They're selling. Yeah. It's, you know, to be honest, it's been, it's been painful. And like you, you brought up a good point and you did hit it on the head. The fact that the rent law change had it, in my opinion, has a drastically more impactful, um, um, you know, impact on the multifamily industry than a global pandemic has something to say with how terrible this policy was for New York City multifamily. Right. But the, the, the what's driving transaction volume right now are, are three things. We've come to the realization that this is what we're dealing with. Right. So whether you're a fund, whether you're a mom and pop owner, retirement can't wait anymore. Your fund has to close. And these guys are deciding that they're taking their equity away from the deal and they're putting it into something else that's going to generate more return for them or is more in line with their business strategy. And those guys may end up going to you know, Houston. Right, because they feel like they, there's more of a return on their equity there, um, but it's creating transaction volume. But I've seen 30 to 40 percent drops in fully rent stabilized buildings because of the effects of the rent laws, and that's huge when you're a mom and pop owner that's owned your building for 40 years, and this was your retirement, and you went from a 15 million dollar asset to an eight million dollar asset. Right? I mean, it's 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 not impacting the landlords that they really thought it was going to impact. Um, you know, these are these are ordinary people that have, you know, been managing these buildings for decades and are now stuck, right? The other thing that's driving transaction volume is the tax changes, right? So it's another policy decision that's, that's eminent that is kind of driving transaction volume. And it's, it's, it's allowing sellers and buyers to meet in the middle, which is ultimately good for New York, I think. You know, in, in 2012, when the last tax change was being proposed, um, there were 850 transactions in the last quarter, right? That is a, basically double what we typically see. When we were at Massey-Nackle, we sold 100 buildings in December alone, right? So like we have that sense of urgency right now that's kind of pushing the market ahead. And I think that's kind of driving transaction volume uh, as well. And then, you know, the market from a rental standpoint has come back stronger than we expected. So you look at average asking rents in New York City right now, they're within 10% of where they were pre-COVID. In some areas, they're, they're more than that. You know, in Brooklyn, the, the, the pre-pandemic rent was 2,700. Now it's 2,600. It's not that different, right? So, you know, I think the inventory in, in Brooklyn pre-pandemic was around 17,000 units. Right now it's 15,000. Or excuse me, it was 15,000. Now it's 17,000. So we're starting to get back to a level where, you know, rentals are more consistent. Buyers know how to underwrite. And they can underwrite confidently. And, you know, with, you know, limited development taking place with the inability to turn over rent stabilized units, you're going to see lack of supply on free market units. And that's, I think, going to drive rents up even further. And it's not good for New York, but it could be good if you want a free market building. So I think people are kind of betting that the free market rents are going to go up uh, for good or, you know, for good or bad. They're, they're likely going to go up and returns in New York should increase. Well, I look, I agree. The free market rents are going up. Um, even in working class neighborhoods, people have to live, right? There's no, and people are living in New York. In Manhattan, young people are always going to want to live in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. There's that's always going to be the case. The danger I see is 
what's the next shoe to drop? Are the progressives next going to say what they did in California? Universal rent control? And no matter what your apartment is, it could be an apartment rented to a millionaire. You could only raise it 2 3% a year. What they're going to do. That's a real danger. Yeah, there's three things that are that that is a threat. You know, you know, one is they're they're going to tighten the loopholes on, you know, substantial rehabilitation of of vacant buildings, right? They're going to they're going to they're tighten the loopholes on reconfiguration, right? Creating a new unit and charging a first rent. You know, like that that's been a lifesaver to a lot of these owners where they can combine units and increase rents. They're going to they're likely going to have trouble with the abatements, the new development abatements, right? And they're probably going to go in the direction of like an MIH where they're just they're allocating more and more affordable. And it's going to come to a point where it's too much affordable to actually justify the development itself. And I think, I think they really need to, to, to speak with industry experts and understand how developers think in order to justify development, right? So that's up for a revote in June of 2022. And again, if they don't rule on that properly or if they postpone it, essentially no new product is going to come into New York until they know what the, what the abatement is going to be. And then third, which is what you're going into, is the universal rent control, right? And that, that is essentially, you, you know, good cause eviction. You can't evict somebody um, without good cause. And in theory, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, but it, it again, is, it's a policy decision that has a huge impact on, you know, on the capital markets. Um, and it concerns me when things put into law have such a huge influence on the way that people conduct business in New York City. Um, you know, so I, I agree, like th those three things are definitely the things to keep an eye on for 2022, uh, in addition to tax law changes. I mean, here in Chicago, you know, we're not dealing with rent regulation like you are in New York, but dealing with, you know, similar issues, rising costs, property taxes are a huge issue here right now. Uh, you know, they just did the new reassessment. So, you know, those bills are coming out and they're, you know, pretty ugly. And kind of, as Amir mentioned earlier, it's making it, these rising costs are making it very hard on the mom and pop. Might own just, you know, two 20 unit buildings, uh, you know, in the, in the city. And, you know, we're seeing basically funds, you know, 200 unit plus owners kind of buying up, buying up everything. Uh, and then, you know, we, we might not be dealing with as much as, you know, uh, owners going to different states, but we are dealing with, you know, owners perhaps going to the suburbs, uh, you know, to, you know, taxes aren't, aren't as much out there, uh, you know, in, in other perks. But, uh, you know, we just ran a CoStar report last week, I believe, and, you know, we, we've seen de uh, rent demand come back into the city. Uh, you know, rents are higher than they've ever been currently in Chicago. And I think it just comes back to the end of the, at the end of the day, where do young people want to live? You know, New York City, you know, Chicago, uh, you know, that's where the great jobs are, whether they're going to the office or not, that's where the, you know, the social life is, you know. So, you know, I have full confidence in, in the major markets and, you know, the cities at the end of the day to win. I'll use that as a segue. So what markets are you guys bullish on? What guys are you bearish on in terms of uh, multifamily? Some of the markets that I don't, uh, that I would say I'm not a huge fan of. So like we, we were just talking about it, you know, we're getting these calls, uh, you know, from New York or wherever these, you know, buyers might be, uh, you know, and perhaps they're investing in Chicago, but they're also asking me, you know, for to invest in red states. And, you know, I, I probably understand it in the Carolinas, Florida, Texas, Arizona, 
but I'm seeing, uh, you know, investors be really aggressive in uh, like Indiana, for example, Indianapolis, or maybe Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and those markets. And I, I don't think I really understand that one because uh, at the end of the day, there's only so many jobs there. There's going to be a ceiling on the rent. And, you know, maybe it's just me, but I don't see people move into those cities to improve their quality of life, perhaps like the Carolinas or, you know, Florida, Texas, Arizona. Uh, so, you know, those, those would be, you know, markets that, you know, I, I don't really get it, uh, you know, and, and I think just because they're red states, investors are being extremely aggressive there. Columbus is actually a city, though, that's growing in leaps and bounds. You know, not not most Americans, if you ask what the biggest city is in Ohio, would say Cleveland, yeah. right? Because that's always what you think. I think it's Columbus now. Yeah, and, and uh, I agree with that with the, with the sorry if I cut you off, but the university, I probably misspoke about Columbus. It's, it's more so I'm specifically talking about Cleveland, uh, you know, Cincinnati, Indianapolis. But at the end of the day, like, you know, how much can those cities grow? And, and, and again, I'm not trying to point out any of, any of those cities specifically. It's just... I'm seeing, especially Indianapolis investors. I mean, they're. I mean, the cap rates are getting so compressed, and you, know, you can only raise rents there so much. Yep, I agree with that. DJ, uh, what, is, <laughs> what are you? I'm, I, I know, I know, I know Brooklyn. I'm a Brooklyn guy through and through. That's where that's where I made my my living and and my in my career. I I like to vacation to these places, but what I know is Brooklyn. What I love is Brooklyn. There's certain pockets of Brooklyn if you want me to get into it and what what where what I like for certain reasons, but um, I I don't have the expertise to talk to to other markets in in the United States. I'll tell you what's a uh, one market that no one wants to look at from a multifamily California, even though the free markets <laughs> right. keep going up, but that they have universal rent control now. Yeah, what do you know what the rules are for their universal rent control? It's like maximum eight percent increases. There, it's not bad. In some other states that passed it, it's not bad. But um, you know that if they do it in New York, it's going to be at some really low number for the right. landlords. Yeah, yeah. And, I know. I saw in the chat someone just asked about Arizona. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't do uh, business there, but I know you know clients that perhaps do. I mean, it seems like it's on fire. From my point of view, I think it's more on fire from the California investor, right? Just because, you know, from my experience and the clients that I talk to, the New York guys, they kind of draw the line at Texas. Once you get west of Texas, it gets it gets harder, uh, you know, just because it's such a long trip, uh, flight, you know, back and forth. Well, I think that's right. Yeah. Arizona is one of those markets that's just a like a strong red market where there's very little regulation relative to a market like New York City or Chicago. Um, and in terms of getting rid of tenants, it's a, it's a very short amount of time relative to New York. Um, I think that it, it's interesting just to watch the cap rate compression that's going on in some of these markets. There's, there's literally three caps being offered in some of these red markets where traditionally there, there were much higher cap rates. So I guess the question really is going to become like, how far can this cap rate compression go? I think uh, cap rates are not as easy to, you know, as easy to calculate as you think on paper, right? I mean, 
there's a dozen different elements to a cap rate that, you know, you don't see when you look at a comp on CoStar, right? So, you know, the biggest of which is upside. So you're buying a three cap that in five years will look a lot better than it's justifiable. But what it all comes down to is risk, right? So there's a thing called a risk premium that we track, which is essentially the margin between the 10-year treasury and where cap rates are in New York. And at this point, there's about 450 basis points between the two, which is the widest that it's been since 2012. That's a huge spread. So one could argue that we could see cap rate compression if there's more confidence and less risk in the New York City market. But I'm not convinced that that's necessarily going to be the case. Um, but in these other markets where, you know, again, you're talking about these bigger, you know, New York families that are going to these other markets, they've bought three caps before and they've turned them around to 10 caps. Like they know what they're doing. They know the efficiencies that they need to bring into these buildings to increase NOI. And I think they're taking advantage of markets that, you know, have not been properly vetted, right? Um, so, you know, again, I, I, think, I think cap rates are always a function of upside. And I think when debt levels are so low, um, it's almost justifiable to pay a three cap if the upside is there. And when you say debt levels, uh, you're referring to interest rates, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah, and I mean, depending on, you know, like there's five or six different ways of getting debt, right? So it really depends the, the angle that you're taking. But for multifamily, it's probably agency, CMBS, and local regional, right? All of which are sub three and a half percent right now. And you knew better than us. But I mean, you know, like we're quoting guys in the high twos on some CMBS stuff, um, agency the same, right? So, you know, that's phenomenal. You know, was it somebody maybe said earlier, like you can't get that money from your grandmother. Right. So like it's um, it's it's it, they're basically, you know, the government's basically funding all of these projects. Um, and it's a great opportunity for developers to take advantage of these other markets. And, you know, then it's upside. Yeah, those it makes those um, compressed cap rates a lot more palatable when you can get a loan at such a low interest rate. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I've told my class um, that I teach at NYU, there were a lot of. Um, th- a lot of my students are not from this country, they're from other countries. And the thing that really distinguishes this country, United States from a lot of other countries, is the, the, the push, the push by the federal government through a lot of these agency loans and you know through the whole creation of the securitization market to basically make every American a homeowner. There's a great push to do that. And look, when they're too aggressive, it leads to things like the Great Recession where the credit markets become way too lenient. But it's definitely you know, different. The Great Recession, the Canadian banks didn't do as bad. And even some of the European banks who weren't as invested in America, because you can't get an 80% loan to value um, you know, loan in Canada. You just can't, or in other countries. You know, you'll get like, you gotta put probably 50% of the money down. So the risk is um, lower, but It'll be interesting to see, and you know, I'd like to see um, what DJ and Finley have to say about this. What if um, we've heard in the last couple of days, the interest rates start getting higher? Will these investors now, um, if the cap rates are still compressed, will they bother with this or they'll look for the other segments you know, that they can turn around? All that empty retail space that you have to completely rethink. Yeah. My thought on interest rates is it, it really depends on what's causing the interest rate to go up, right? 
you know, if you're, you know, we talked about how these big rent stabilized owners have essentially become money managers, right? So they're in it for the cash on cash. And if the rents can't go up, interest rates could go up because um, of inflation, right? And, and, you know, and rents should go up with that, right? So there should be this, this spread that stays relatively consistent. That's the hope, at least in a perfect, in a perfect world. But if rents don't go up and interest rates go up, then I can't argue that cap rates should stay the same, right? Because at this point, what's drawing people to the fully rent stabilized buildings is the cash on cash, right? It's the good financing, long-term patient equity, waiting out this political storm 20 years from now, things are going to turn around and they're going to look like geniuses. But without the low cap, without the low interest rates, it's kind of hard to really push that, that strategy to your partners. I think one thing we didn't mention that's also been pushing the market, I think we talked about it a little before um, everyone got on, is the replacement value of buildings. Construction costs during pandemic have gone crazy. Even if someone is doing a home improvement cost, everything, lumber, concrete, everything, drywall, everything has gotten so much more expensive. So if you can buy a building in half decent condition in Chicago, it's not a bad deal. But, you know, not only are supplies to the roof, there's, a, you know, a labor shortage, uh, at least in Chicago, you know, no one's, you know, doing trades, you know, you, you can't find work. Uh, so, you know, that, that's, yeah, definitely something to consider. They're start selling these buildings for scraps, buy and sell the lumber and sell the windows. And <laughs> exactly. So I think DJ asked the question, um, for someone interested in pivoting to the multifamily units ownership, where is the best place to start in terms of location, building type, and budgeting? So I'll tell you, New York, the best place to start is to find a small building under six units so it doesn't fall under any rent regulation and start with that. Pick a good working class neighborhood. Um, you know, Find something that some owner is selling who needs to get out, you know, a good broker, a good broker will help you find that property. Uh, someone has estate issues or someone just can't afford it. You know, I've, I've had a lot of clients buy properties like that and you can start your portfolio that way. You know, to, if you haven't done this before to start your portfolio with a hundred unit building, you don't want to learn on the job. It's not going to end well. That's so that's where a lot of the stuff is trading. Those smaller, smaller units, that's where people are also looking at. When those become available in a decent neighborhood, you know, there's a lot of bidders. And that's what we love to lend on, honestly. Just those small, uh, technically the residential, if it's uh, five. If it's, yeah, exactly. So yeah, five, five. and then five units above is multi. But on those like four unit buildings, we're doing 80%, 85% of purchase, 100% of renovation. Um, and we'll, we'll cap it at like 65 to 70% of the, of the completed value of projected ARV. Um, but that's where the strength is in the market today. With, I mean, there's just been so much, uh, like there's so much instability that's occurred with large owners who have owned malls, who've owned retail. Um, and even 
while industrial is very strong and I am bullish on it, if you own a random 10,000 or 20,000 square foot industrial building in not like in a tertiary market, there might not necessarily be the same demands as a 2 million square foot building uh, right outside of an MSA or in an MSA. Um, so point being that these small residential or small multifamily buildings, that's where lenders are comfortable lending. And that's where the, the stability has been throughout COVID. We've seen, uh, at least on multifamily, we've seen 90% occupancy rates the entire time. So it's, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of things that people are unsure of today whether it's uh, Chinese developers who are on the verge of default, like Evergrande, or uh, some, some questionable policies of the, the current uh, Biden administration. But I think what, like, what is clear is that where there's a safe haven is assets like, like these these small, uh, like these residential or small multifamily assets. Well, it's also one business that the internet can't kill, right? Yeah. They, they're able to kill retail well, and Airbnb could hurt hotels. There's no, an internet can't take away the need for people to have a place to live. Exactly, that's what I was about to say. No matter what the market does, people need a place to live. It's as simple as that. And we, and we, and we, and we're also, it's well-documented dealing with the housing shortage. So, you know. Right. One thing uh, that I can tell you that I've been seeing, which I've never seen before is the amount of sellers in some of these super hot markets who are willing to default the, because from contract to when we're ready to close, things are moving so quickly and they suddenly realize they could have gotten a decent amount more for their property, they're willing to default and take the risk. You know, as, as an attorney, you got to be a lot more careful in that seller default section. Usually sellers were the one who got on the phone with you and were like, when are we closing? When are we closing? When are we closing? Right. Now I've had circumstances where sellers are basically not caring what closing conditions they have to do, just saying, sue me. They're hoping that you terminate and ask for your deposit back because they know that in two, three weeks, they can be in contract at a higher price. Now, that, that concept that, I've never, I haven't seen in a long time. Is that in New York? Is that mostly No, New no, York? no, no, that's not in New York. Wow. That's in um, other states. In New York, it's a whole different thing with, um, you know, purchasers and sellers use the courts as a weapon because it takes so long to get anything done. Right. You know, I, I, I always tell my class, you know, I have clients who insist on time of the essence. So time of the essence in most other states, if you put it in Ohio, Florida, any of the Southern states, it really means time of the essence. If you can't close on time and the seller's totally ready to close, you're gonna lose your deposit. It's not gonna take that long. Mm -hmm. In New York, it really, you know, they can still take you. They used to be six months to a year. Now after the courts are completely screwed up, a buyer, as long as they're not willing, is they're willing to leave that money in escrow, you know, they can jack you around for, they can jam you for two years at least. But um, I'm seeing a lot more sellers willing to default and try like almost begging the buyers to, here, 
here's your deposit, just terminate the contract. Well, one of the things that I've seen recently is new in, in my specific market is uh, one of my good friends is a broker in Dallas. And, you know, to get a deal there, you, you have to put up, you know, some amount of money hard day one. <laughs> so yeah. I always kind of get jealous of, you know, his, cause you know, we, we have a 30, 45 day due diligence, you know, go through the entire inspection process. But I would say the last 30 days, I've started to see people, you know, it's become so competitive, even in, you know, the South side of Chicago that, you know, they're putting up not a large amount of money, but, you know, maybe 10 K hard day one in order to get the deal, which is, you know, uh, very interesting trend. What you're seeing in Chicago is now being um, more of a trend in a lot of these hot yeah. states. They're also, look, it's even more than going hard. A lot of sellers are requiring release. So they yeah, don't want it in escrow. They want to actually release to them the deposit. That's definitely something we're seeing. Exactly. And you know the due diligence period um, in New York on commercial deals, you didn't really get it. You know, that's you get due diligence almost everywhere else in the country. Yeah. In New York, the answer was always do your reports while we're doing the contract. You know, do whatever you need to before we sign the contract. Short of title, you know, New York sellers traditionally didn't want to have any closing conditions. Yeah, we'll, we refuse contingencies um, even still. And we, we get it. A complicated deal. Maybe there's some uh, specific due diligence that we'll rep, but um, you know, in New York, you you expect a ten percent deposit to go hard. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think the rest of the of the country is starting to feel what New York City demand yeah. feels like, and they're adjusting, which is smart. It's good for sellers. But you know, like to your point about sellers backing out of deals, I think what some of our sellers have noticed is when we compare a sale option versus a refi option. Unless, they're, unless it's a real life decision um, and they, they see themselves selling in the next couple of years, um, the refi options are just too attractive. So uh, particularly if, if their rent roll is going up. So on a lot of these newer developments, we got hired to sell in the pandemic and we're simultaneously offering them, here's your, here's your sale option, here's your refi option. Um, and almost 90% of them went in the refi direction because the rental rates popped at the right time. And they're like, okay, I'm, I, I don't want to get exit this too soon. Um, so, you know, sellers sometimes have remorse too. And we're feeling that now because the rents are, are coming back faster than we expected. I mean, that's, that's what I'm telling my sellers. I say, look, if, if, if you, if your plan is to sell in the next three years, I think now's the time, mm -hmm. but if, if you're planning to hold, uh, you know, longer than that, then I, I wouldn't sell, but full disclosure, I was telling them the same thing in 2018, 19. And I was That's wrong. A, it's a good broker. <laughs> it's what brokers should say, you know. <laughs> Hedging but your bets. The, I like that. the reality is we don't know, like there's particularly in New York, there there are some huge policy decisions that are looming that we don't know what direction it's gonna go in. So, you know, if you you know, I know where demand is now. You know, if if there's an alignment on price expectations, then I do think the seller should should look at selling now. Like, what if they're facing different capital gain structures next year? What if they're facing universal rent control? Like, you know, these are things that are just becoming the norm almost. And um, so, you know, when, when you do have kind of a, um, a clear path to an exit and you feel confident that price discovery is there, then you got to move when you're ready. Um, but again, with debt as cheap as it is, um, you know, I, I'm, 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 uh, 
you know, I've seen a lot of people just decide to go in that direction and kind of punt to the next cycle. Yeah, I agree with you. The one, the one time I see where sellers just will not refinance is if they actually have to put a lot of money yeah, into absolutely. their property and they just, they don't want it. And the new, I find the New York buyers are a lot more used to dealing with a lot more of these operational issues and it doesn't phase them as much. Right. You know, well, you, gotta, so, you, gotta, you gotta get rid of mold in uh, 50 units. All right, we'll deal with it. Some of these sellers are like, oh my God, they don't want to deal with it. No. Well, it, it, like you said, it takes cash. It, right. also takes, it, it also takes a different investment mentality. You're not looking at a promote structure. You're looking at a cash on cash structure. And some guys, you know, if they bought something in 2017, they were not in it for 20 years. They're in it for five years and they need to execute their business plan. So like, even though the refi looks good, like it's not their business plan to keep the asset. So their IRR may be lower than they projected, but at the end of the day, they've got to stick to their business plan and move on to the next value add deal. Agreed. What predictions do you guys have for multifamily nationally in the coming years? I, I mean, I'm telling my sellers, like I said, if they want to sell in the next two or three years, now's the time. I think Amir uh, mentioned this earlier. There's There's been no foreclosures uh, the last, you know, ever since COVID based, everything's been put on hold. At some point, that's got to change. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't expect the multifamily market to crash or, you know, I, I believe 100% in it, but I do think a correction is coming. Uh, you know, I don't expect to crash. There's just way too much uh, money on the sidelines that, are, that is, that's waiting for that. So as soon as these opportunities arise, and I think there will be opportunities in the next two, three years, I think they'll be quickly snatched up. You know, that's kind of where, where I'm at with that. There's, there's definitely a whole bunch of people on the sidelines in the big cities in Chicago and New York who are expecting exactly that. They're expecting once the court system's actually open and you're allowed to foreclose, a lot of these, especially in New York, a lot of these landlords whose value went down by 30% from in one day, 30% literally after the rent laws were, were, um, were voted in, some of them are going to have to sell and they're going to have to sell whatever they can get. And the banks are going to have to do commercial short sales. One other thing that we didn't mention, which also will hurt New York, unfortunately, is if you have a multifamily building, but you were getting at least decent rents from a store on the bottom. Now they're talking about commercial rent control in New York. That's the next thing. It's like they got their wish list day one. So like, what else can you ask for? It's like getting all your presents on all your wish lists. Now you really got to think out of the box. Like, what else can I ask my parents for? That's what's going on. And, um, but yeah, I think, I think the prices will drop. I definitely think we're going to reach in the, in the non-New York markets. And again, I'm not talking about Chicago. I'm talking about cities where we didn't chase. The prices are going to get too high there too, where the cap rates are going to get so compressed. It's just not going to be worth it. If I'm doing a deal like that, it's not worth it to get on a plane. I might as well do a deal with a little bit worse cap rate that I can get in the car and drive and have a lot more control over. So, but- I, yeah. yeah, sorry, Amir, finish up. Yeah, just the, the other thing that I'm seeing now is um, when I'm representing purchasers, sellers are putting in for the first time. You know, you had in the beginning of COVID, you had COVID provisions. No one accepts those anymore. You had COVID provisions where if, 
there was some kind of delay or you couldn't get financing or the government didn't let anything go on that you could get out of the contracts. Those you can't ask for anymore. Um, but now you have capital gains, termination rights of seller. If the administration passes a huge capital gains increase, sellers want to be able to terminate the contract because then it's not going to pay for them to sell. They're going to go the refinancing route. Right. And we didn't even touch on the fact, will they, will they not um, go after the 1031 exchanges? Are they getting those, those terms? Are buyers agreeing to that? Um, it depends how much the buyers. I have buyers right. who agree to it. You bet a good lawyer definitely has to massage the language like crazy. Right. You want it over a certain amount. And also um, a, buyer, a buyer that really wants the property and knows it's getting a good price will probably say, um, it, before you can terminate, if I want to give you a credit for whatever extra tax you have to pay, I want to be able to save the deal. Right. If they really want, if they're getting into what they think is a good price. Right. Um, one thing that I just want to maybe leave with and um, just as a prediction, because I, you know, you look at New York and you drive down some of these neighborhoods and you think there's a ton of development happening. But the reality is, is like we have a production issue. We do not have enough housing. Our housing is outdated. Um, there, there's just not enough units to keep up with either population or job growth. We've, we've, we've added since the recession a million jobs, but only 200,000 new units, right? So our, our new jobs increased by 22%. Our building stock only increased by 4%. So, you know, you just look at the, the numbers and we are clearly in desperate need of housing. And, you know, I think the affordable housing is, is improving, but without promoting free market development in the way of proper abatements and, you know, reeling in construction costs, however way you can, um, you know, we're going to have a supply issue. It's going to be good for people that are investing in free market buildings right now, but I don't think it's good for overall New York. And I think that um, we got to keep an eye on that. And we've got to develop more. But, um, and I, I know it's the opposite agenda of, of the current uh, policymakers, but it's just simple economics, in my opinion. I, I agree. And I think they go a lot, they, they go about it completely the wrong way. Instead They're saving rent stabilized units instead of what, building new ones. Right. But what, yeah, but what I would do is instead of forcing a really high end developer, to take 20% of a really high-end building and give it to people making $50,000 a year. Because the bottom line is if you're making $300,000 a year, you, you most likely will not be able to afford that apartment. Right. Force them instead of that 20% to build good housing in working class neighborhoods, good housing, schools, other infrastructure, whatever that amount of money, because you can build a lot more in a working class neighborhood for that same amount of money than those 20% of units that you can build. Right. And then you make the whole, the working class neighborhood gets a lot better and more right. stable. Mm -hmm. But it sounds better, you know, that's when politicians only really care. And if you look at what, you know, they don't really look at the actual effect on the working class, not the rich. We're not talking about the rich of a lot of these progressive policies. They don't actually help them. You know, it's the same thing with defund the police. What neighborhoods are getting affected worse? Mm -hmm. The Upper East Side or some of the poorer neighborhoods? So again, but it sounds better if you can say that 
you got a poor person into a building with a bowling alley and a pool. Right. But how much more good housing could you build? Either force them to build it or force them to put whatever you know you can calculate the amount into a fund where right. that fund is giving really low interest loans to affordable housing developers in those areas. Right. I love that idea. But right. they don't think about that. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you also don't think, they don't think about things like, look, I don't live in Manhattan, but I know that if I lived in Manhattan, how many more costs to keep a car? I live in Long Island. To keep a car, how much more does it cost you? You know, even things like soda and Tropicana are, are a lot more in Manhattan than right. if you go to a supermarket. And it costs a lot of money to live there. That's why, so no one ever thinks of the middle class. That's always one of my pet peeves. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they don't want to think about it because all they really care about, the whole thing with the, they care about, too many politicians only care about getting elected and saying yep. what they think people want to hear, even if it's not actually the best policy. Mm -hmm. And I think both parties are guilty of it. So, and, and multifamily is affected by politics more than, it seems, more than any other sector in real estate. Particularly affordable housing. Particularly affordable housing. Yeah. Amir for Absolutely. president. No, no, no. <laughs> he has one vote from Chicago. <laughs> it's, it's a new party. It's called the practical party. Yeah. You know? But anyway, I look, I, I'm still optimistic. Um, I'm as busy as ever. Um, and I think the, the country, you know, we talk about multifamily, it's always going to be there. But I think our country is smart enough and we have so many smart people. They're going to figure out what to do with all these dead malls and all these other buildings that are just not going to be used anymore. And you know, everyone talks about COVID. Co all COVID did was take existing problems and just put them on hyperspeed, move them up 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, even the whole home office thing. People were starting to work more from home, but people were using stuff like Zoom sporadically. When you were forced to use it, it's easy. Like I said also, um, banks are closing branches all over the place because people, even older people, when they couldn't go to a bank during COVID, suddenly saw how easy it is to put all their deposits on their phone. Right. So they don't go. Banks realize you don't need to pay the real estate. Yeah. So, COVID didn't really cause any of these things. They just accelerated the time frame, which would the rest of us actually have to deal with. I agree. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Um, so I think we have a few minutes left if we could open up questions from the audience. Um, I believe. There's a question uh, from Tim, and he wants to know uh, our perspective on the retail market, whether that's still a big four sector. I mean, I think the biggest retail plays of the last two years had to do with community facility, charter schools, you know, these, these um, really kind of like community driven type uses um, uses where you need to leave your house. Um, you know, we've seen certain trends like, you know, like where 
even where salons were out beating restaurants, right? And, and as far as bids, um, you know, we've seen, um, you know, gaming arenas come in and take bigger spaces in certain markets. So like, I think the entire industry is reinventing itself, um, but it's probably one of the sectors that saw the biggest reset. And to Mir's point, COVID just accelerated it to a point where we have a clean slate, you know? And if we've got 40% vacancy in New York, Imagine the type of new tenants that are going to come in and absorb that. So I just think you have to think next generation and COVID's really forced us to do that. But with that probably comes a reevaluation on what is a fair rent? What is justifiable for the business operation of these companies? Um, you know, but, you know, I, I do feel like retail will make a huge push. It's just going to be like every other cycle. It's one of those sectors that follows. Um, so you're going to see multifamily, then you're going to see, you know, development, then you're going to see, you know, office, then hotel, and then retail may come towards the end, right? It's just, there's a lot of vacancy to absorb. Um, so it's a matter of time, but it's, it's going to take time. That's my opinion. Time and ingenuity. You know, right. if you think you're just going to open up a, a regular clothing store, a regular business, you know, food, food people want to go to, but the food in like Manhattan, you don't have office people that you're not going to sell sandwiches right or you're not going to sell salads so but it's going to be i think they're going to have a lot more health care on the ground floors i'm seeing that a lot more like when i walk from penn station to my office um but yeah i think people are going to have to be inventive and a lot of these malls are going to end up being completely completely different uses you know whether they turn a mall into senior health care and malls are usually in good locations because they're access to so much transportation. So they are susceptible to reuse. So like so a lot of the retail sites, yeah. I'm sorry, to your point, like a lot of the retail sites that we're selling, and this is a smaller scale, so it may not be, you know, uh, to the, to the grade of a, of an existing mall, but you know, a 10,000 square foot piece of retail in, in Brooklyn, it's not so much just about street traffic, it's about manufacturing purpose. And can you combine retail with manufacturing? And you know, does it, so that's why these warehouses have been taking off. And it's, it's not because Amazon's coming and buying all of these warehouses, but a lot of them are suitable for, you know, we sold a warehouse to a, to a guy that sells chocolate. You know, he manufactured the chocolate in the back, he wanted a park next door, and he, he had a retail storefront. So it's this hybrid of manufacturing, retail, um, to really just make the most of the square footage. Um, so I, I agree with you, it's, it's ingenuity. Entirely, I and mean, to take that one step further, what's to stop developers from taking a retail space and building multifamily on top? It's a, I think that we're gonna have to reuse the existing assets that are out there in terms of malls, maybe converting them to a mixed-use sort of property where there are there are residences. Yeah, and there's bigger, you know, there's bigger retail strips in areas like East New York and the Bronx where you can make a real case to, you know, apply for a variance or go for affordable, which may not be as of right, but is ultimately going to get approved. And we're doing a lot of those type of valuations and reassessments on here's my footprint, here's what can be masked out on a traditional affordable housing project, you know, affordable. BSF goes for $60 a buildable. Like, what does that equate to, you know, once the approvals are done? 
And it could be a five to 10 year process, but ultimately it's a much higher and better use for such a large footprint in certain areas. For sure. And I think I'll just use that as a segue into, and to help wrap things up. So the, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, just announced earlier today that they're essentially going to get rid of zoning laws in California, uh, particularly uh, any single family houses, those assets can be redeveloped to up to four units. So we have this crazy shortage of residential multifamily assets around the country right now. And we have a lot of land, a lot of space available. So I think it's going to be about rezoning uh, existing areas or even entire states in order to allow for more development, which eventually will lead to helping uh, increase supply and reducing the, the, the shortage of housing stock. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, developers are going to have to get creative because then the end of the, the day, uh, it doesn't make sense, uh, you know, to, to build up the numbers just don't make sense. So you're going to have to get creative with the ex existing structures, uh, you know, to help fix this housing shortage. Yeah, I mean, or if there's government incentives on top yeah. in terms of tax abatements, like the 421A, um, those could help make a project more profitable and allow developers to build ground up. But I, I think I think that we like as a as a country need to start thinking about how we can increase the housing supply and uh, make the policies more favorable to multifamily owners and developers and less burdensome. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. But you still need some zoning. I'm totally in support of opening. Otherwise, you know, it's always the trivia question I ask my class. What is the um, one major city in the country with basically no zoning laws? Houston. It's Houston, Houston. You don't want, you still don't want just rampant overdevelopment, but yeah, California has been always guilty of you, you couldn't build anything. It was ridiculous. I think that that law is a step in the right direction. There's a lot of other laws that need to be implemented or changed, but at the very least, we need a more pro-development uh, mentality with regard to multifamily and residential assets in this country today. Yeah. Okay, so it looks like we're, uh, we, we've reached our time limit here today. I'd really like to thank our, our guests for, for coming on today. Uh, Finley Askin from CRER, if you guys have any interest in acquiring multifamily assets in Chicago, he's your guy to talk to. 10 cows. <laughs> 10 cows. Major market, 10 cows. You should, you should put that on a hat, by the way. You should put that on a baseball hat. 10 cows. I haven't seen cap. a seven cap in 10 years. And cap guaranteed. <laughs> uh, I'd also like to thank DJ Johnson for B6. Uh, again, he's one of the most active and up and coming brokers in New York for investment sales. And Amir Kornblum, who's a uh, highly skilled uh, real estate attorney. If you guys are acquiring any assets nationally, he's your guy to call. 
Uh, so again, Let's wrap this up correctly. DJ, you bring me a New York buyer. I, I represent, uh, you represent his side. I represent South side. He'll use a, a mirror's representation. We'll use Andrew for lending. That's what this whole thing was for. That's, right. That's wrapping everything up in a ribbon. I love that. That's great. <laughs> All right, Andrew. Thank you so much. This was great. Thanks, Thanks you guys. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.